On Sunday nights at Northside, we are studying the book of Luke, going through textual, a uh, textual study of Luke's account, uh, the only Gentile author of the Gospels, and his perspective on that is very important to us for us to know, to uh, not only to know for ourselves, but just to know Jesus and who He is. In our world, there is a word that is most overused. There's probably a lot of overused one, but there's one that always makes me think a little bit. Uh, the word is awesome. Uh, not, that's not adjective, it's the, the noun. The, the actual word is the word awesome. The reason I say that is because I think it's quite overused. And I, just kind of the way we talk Pay attention this week and see how often you hear the word awesome. And ask yourself if the event or person or thing so described is truly awesome. Or if it's just a way of saying really good. The, the word, of course, in its origin means full of awe. Something that makes you stop and, and fills you with awe. I've heard phrases like this. Did you empty the dishwasher? Awesome. Uh, did you feed the dog? Awesome. Uh, you know, maybe you pull into Chick-fil-A and the guy, after he repeats your order, he's like, okay, anything else? Nope, that's it. Awesome. Okay, that one counts. But, but the others, maybe a little bit overuse of the word. The problem is, is that the more we use the word awesome, the truly less we really understand how awesome something is. In other words, if everything is awesome, then nothing is awesome. Perhaps you've seen that great theological work known as the Lego movie. In that movie, uh, there is this particular song. Uh, in the title is, Everything is Awesome. Everything's cool when you're part of a team. And this theme song goes throughout Legoland. And, and as our character goes through his uh, adventures, he realized that that's not quite true. That, that, that everything's not really awesome. And you'll have to see the more movie if you want to know more to that. But, but that is the problem. If everything is awesome, then really nothing is awesome. And, and that's my beef with the word awesome, is, is that the more we use it, the less special, the less awesome, awesome truly is. Now, I have no doubt after tonight's lesson, uh, at least 17 of you will say, hey, awesome sermon tonight, really good. Yeah. Tonight I want to look at and invite you to look anew at Jesus as we look at four stories about him and as we get a closer, more intimate look at Jesus, I hope we get a renewed sense of awe at who he is, his power, his might, and his authority. We are in tonight, Luke chapter 8, verse 22. And we're going we're gonna to go over four specific stories in Luke chapter 8, verse 22, through chapter 9, verse 6. Um, <clears throat> I realize that there are a potential of four separate sermons here, but, but I, I want us to 
sort of take a step back and, and get a bigger picture that Jesus or that Luke is describing Jesus in these accounts which we just take for granted. You know, oh, Jesus calmed the storm. Awesome. You know, and it's awesome, 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 awesome. And we kind of dilute the power and the might. So it's not going to be four individual sermons, but just along this theme of understanding Jesus' true power. These four different stories are Jesus calming the storm, Jesus healing a man with a demon, Jesus healing a hemorrhaging woman, and Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. These four different stories share four similarities And they tell us four different things about Jesus. Number one, that he does what no one else can. In each story, you'll find Jesus doing what no one else thought possible, and maybe even his own disciples. Jesus changes the situation or the person. This is the second. He always changes it for the better. There's a marked improvement, a marked, sometimes a miraculous improvement. The third is that Jesus' authority is clearly seen. And the fourth is that Jesus is genuinely awesome. May we come to a deeper appreciation as we go. So let's start with the first story, Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. As they sailed, uh, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they, were, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. They marveled saying to one another, who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Jesus was with them, and yet they were afraid of what was around them. Now, this is something that only applied to the apostles. I know you and I do not ever have this situation today where we know Jesus is with us, and yet we are fearful at the news of the day or fearful about events going on in our lives. I know you and I don't struggle with that, but, but we can sit here in judgment absolutely on the apostles, because where was their faith, after all? Well, Jesus was conked out, showing his humanity. Uh, The disciples were freaking out and showed their humanity. They showed their sinful nature. They showed their fearful hearts. Some of these disciples, as we know, uh, were experienced fishermen. I like how the ESV words this. It, It gives us a sense of the real danger that they were in. Uh, they were filling with water. I'm not sure if any of you have had uh, experiences recently with thunderstorms and maybe your home uh, or the neighborhood where you lived in filled with water. And there's just really um, the power of water. You don't really understand it until it begins to encroach upon your life. And you realize sort of in that moment, if you're a farmer or, or someone who drove through water, it was deeper than they should have driven through, or whether it came into your home, that, that you're really helpless. They were, their boat is filling with water. Now, these experienced fishermen know that this situation is tragic and severe, and no doubt uh, they were waiting. Like, ah, do we really need to wake Jesus for this? And at some point, the water gets high enough, and they go, it, it's probably time. 
it's probably time. Uh, there is a sense of urgency. Master, master. This is, we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Now, there, there's an interesting little geographical fact about the, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this uh, place that's normally pretty calm is surrounded by mountains. And because it's surrounded by mountains, normally that makes it calm. But there are times when there are, uh, uh, it's susceptible to very strong, violent winds and storms that spring up almost instantaneously. And we, we know that. That does happen. Um, some of the worst weather in Kansas is ironically in a place called Goodland, Kansas. It sits at the, the base of the, the Rocky Mountains. As the, as the winds ravage it, it's more susceptible to the storms. Um, sometimes life blindsides you and I with unexpected storms, not things we plan for, not things we thought about late at night as we went to sleep, but not things we even remotely thought were on the horizon. They just sort of sprang up. If you've ever been there, you understand the terror with which the disciples speak and the peace that they must have felt as Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Peace. Be still. In that moment, we see Jesus' authority over creation. Authority as creator over his creation. And so we we understand Jesus existed as a man in flesh, but Jesus also not just existed on page 1110 of the Pew Bible, but indeed right there at the beginning, in the beginning, God was there. The Son was there creating and and making creation manifest. And so he shows his power and his authority. The psalmist, in Psalm chapter 89, verses 8 and 9, is praising the power and the steadfast love of God. And he begins describing God, verse 8 and 9. He says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Faith in a storm seems rather silly, unless unless your faith is in one who is greater than the storm. And then, it's not silly, it's... Absolutely critical. Christ followers are never promised a life free of storms. Looking at some of you, I know some of you have been in the storm, through the storm, and it's in those moments where we must trust the Savior and believe that he still has power over the raging storms. Now we're going to go to verse 26 for our second story of the evening. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there, uh, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. There, when he saw Jesus... 
he cried out and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many time it had seized him and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And when a man, uh, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him uh, to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And these who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done him. We enter into this story with a possessed man. He has uh, nothing left. What has possessed him has taken everything from him. These demons, this legion. He has no clothes. He has no home. He has no relationships. And indeed, he even has no control over his physical body. He is a man with demons. The situation is quite critical. And yet, he comes to one Stronger than them. I share with you a story. Uh, we could go tonight uh, after the evening service. Uh, there was a man who uh, was brought to me, a man who was uh, not well. He had definitely some issues. He had had a terrible day. And, and I presume, of course, in that situation, that he was going to ask me for food or funds or something of that nature. And he, he started off the conversation. This was got, got my attention. He said, I don't. I don't want any money. I, I don't want anything. I just, I need some help. And he described what he had been through. And he, we got to talking a little bit more. And he said, do you believe in demon possession? Do you believe that that happens? And I said, well, I can say myself, I've never seen it. I, I do think the devil is real, and I have no doubt that his demons are but I think there's a strategic play with the enemy when he chooses to reveal himself and when he chooses not to. I think we live personally in a culture where it's easier for the enemy to hide himself. He's far more effective. But this was a culture and a time where that was not the case. These people knew that this man had issues and had problems. Now, the man that I was speaking to that evening... I told him, quite frankly, you need more help than I can give you. But I said, there is one who can help you. And if you want help, and if you want healing, and if you want to be made well, 
uh, the same man that helped me can help you. The same man who helped this man help could help him. And I led him in prayer, and I directed him to Jesus, and, and I encouraged him to uh, come to uh, one of our Celebrate Recovery uh, options, and I, I tried to share with him some other things. But um, the, the point is still the same, that when people are in hopeless situations, uh, the, the answer for critical situations is still an awesome Savior. He's the only one, in fact, who could do anything for this man. Clearly no one else could, and, and people had tried. But immediately, what's interesting to me is that the, the, the demons immediately recognize who Jesus is and what, he, what Jesus can do, what he will do. And, and that's interesting to me because sometimes even human beings don't recognize who Jesus is. We fail to give him his full awe that has due him. The book of James, brother of Jesus, wrote these words, You, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Belief and understanding, that's just the very basic level. Even the demons understand who Jesus is and what his power is and what his authority. And they they begged him not to destroy them. They knew he could do that. And so uh, Jesus sends them out and cast them into the swine. Mark, the book of Mark in chapter 5 records this account, and he says there were 2,000 pigs. So, for those of you bacon lovers, this story gets sad real quick. Um, But this is clearly a Gentile reason. This is not something that Jews would be doing. But but not only is there there a lot of swine there, but this is is indicative that there there were a lot of, this man had a lot to overcome, and he had a lot of demons in heaven. When they said legion, they were not overstating the case. In fact, several experts believe that this story, they kind of looked at the evidence, that, that this occurred near the modern village of Kersey. If you type it in, Google image, here's a, a picture of Kersey with the steep, steep cliffs and a, a, a plethora of tombs throughout the area. And um, this is kind of where, you know, as they picture where Galilee is and across the region, and, and they look at it and think, this tends to match up. The text doesn't say that, obviously, um, but uh, we can kind of get a picture in our minds that this may have been similar to, or the cliff, uh, the, the, the hillside, as some translations say, that the pigs went down and were drowned. Now, after this, after this encounter, after the... the the pigs are, you know, the the demons are sent to the to the pigs, and they go down the uh, hillside. This man is totally transformed. The ESV says, "Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind." The people see him, and what's interesting to me is that those who saw this, the the, the people who had come out, then come out to see all of this. When they see this man now totally transformed, then they are afraid. Then they become fearful of Jesus. Which is like a little interesting to me. Like, how were they? Were, were they just yeah? You know, there's that guy. He's 
crazy Joe, you know, there he is. He's just out there in the tombs. Yeah, we know he's naked, you know. Yeah, he's, he's got a lot of demons. I mean, had they had become comfortable, maybe even complacent is the word, over this miserable situation. And I thought, man, sometimes maybe we do that. We, we become so comfortable with our dysfunction or with the, the misery of other people that it, it, it becomes normal to us and we fail to, to see that that was not what God had in mind for us. So, uh, just, just a thought there. The, 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 the man, of course, begs to go with Jesus. He wants to be... Uh, a student, an apostle. He wants to go on with him and travel with him. But Jesus calls this man now healed, now changed, now transformed to be a missionary, to share what God has done. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. To share what God has done. Isn't isn't this the essence of of if we truly believe whether or not God is awesome. If, if I could funnel you all through one door tonight and force you to, to look me in the eye and I could ask you the question, do you believe Jesus is awesome? Well, you would probably know the answer that I would expect. And I would guess that 100% of you would give that answer. But that's not really what matters. What matters, you see, is if that belief is truly in your heart. Because if it, if it is, then it will overflow out of your mouth. You will share how, not just how awesome Jesus is, but how much of a difference he's made in your life. Don't you know this man was never the same? But I have a, 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 another idea. It's even beyond the text of Scripture. And that is, I don't think this man was ever quiet again. This story shows us Jesus' authority, absolute authority over the spiritual world. Now, it's not often that, uh, in fact, my whole ministry career at this point, I've never seen, I've never seen firsthand, I've heard stories, secondhand, thirdhand, and beyond, but I've never seen firsthand something like this. But if I did, I'd still run to the same, I'd, I'd still run to the same authority. I'd still go to the same place. I'd still seek the same saving from the Savior, Jesus himself. Now, we move to our third awesome story, and we are in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there was a, a man, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up and behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith 
has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Jesus, on hearing this, answered them, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Now all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called her, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed. But what he charged them to tell, uh, to tell no one what had happened. Two specific suffering people in this story. The first is a dying girl, uh, the daughter of Jairus. And we know from the early account, Luke chapter 4, verse 33, uh, that Jesus, or that Jairus rather, would have been familiar with Jesus' power, his uh, ability to cure and to heal and so forth. So perhaps that's why he came to the teacher. But the second character in this story is a woman uh, with a severe hemorrhage, an incurable disease. Uh, obviously, the, the hemorrhaging left her, uh, from a Jewish perspective, she was in a state of uncleanness. She was, that meant she was isolated physically and no doubt relationally and emotionally. She had all sorts. And you get the sense from this picture that there's this crowd of people and there's this woman who's seeking Jesus and almost no one sees it. Like, no one knows about it. No one knows what she's suffered through the, and, and the, the horrendous nature of it and, and the isolation and the embarrassment of it and, and the, the, the sense of hopelessness because those who should have been able to provide some sort of amelioration could not. She had, she had spent everything she had. Now she's even isolated to the point where she's poor. She's unable to do any more. All of, all of her options that she could think of, that one could reasonably think of, had been exhausted. And she almost, my sense of this picture is that she reaches out to Jesus in desperation. Now, to be fair, both of these women are in terribly desperate situations, terrible suffering. We live in a world of suffering. It's really the status quo in a world of sin. In fact, um, if you are to share your faith in Jesus or your belief in God with someone who does not share that belief, often one of the first subjects that they began to bring up is the incalculable suffering that happens Every day in the world. How could a good God allow such unimaginable suffering? Now, we're not dealing with 
suffering on the meta scale. We're just talking about two individual people. But, but if you've ever been in a position of suffering, you understand how much it can wreck you in the sense of your faith. There is some suffering that, that comes as a consequence of living in a broken world. Hurricanes and floods and tornadoes. I, I think that's part of the brokenness of the, the physical creation. That something happened in the beginning, and then even as God changed the world uh, with Noah, that, that the world is a very different... It's the, that's the only world we know, but it's, it's still broken. They're, they're, those things weren't in the beginning. It was not always that way. And, and so there is suffering that happens like that. And that, you need to understand, was not God's will. God created a perfect world, literal utopia, the, the, the perfection and, and everything that we had and needed. There is other suffering that is... You know, we have the, the one suffering that's a consequence of, of, of our sin and, and, and it goes along with uh, someone's sin. And there's others who live suffering this as a consequence of living in a broken world. And both of those, whether direct suffering or indirect suffering, are not God's will. If it was God's will for that to happen, then these two stories would be very different. It's not the Father's will that we should suffer, but the, the reality of it is is that suffering is a part of the consequences of free will and the world, subsequently, that we live in. Faith in Jesus, and, and this story shows it clearly, this is the, he is the only cure, and faith in him is the only cure for these two chronic, hopeless conditions. Her, uh, let's see, look what verse it is. Verse 48. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now what's interesting here is her faith is exceptional. I mean, Jesus says, the power went out from me. This was not like, it was, it was almost a, 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 a reflexive action, like something he didn't, he didn't have full control. I don't know if that was the case or not, but, but he was saying, yeah, well, I mean, the, the, when he became aware of this woman was when the power went out from him. It wasn't like, I need you to have faith. Will you have faith? Yes, Master. It, no, it was very different. You, you, here's this crowd of people. Here's this woman that nobody notices. And she reaches out and says, he is the only hope. If I could just touch the, the very hem of his garment, if I could just touch that. Her faith in that moment seems to have short-circuited on some level the process that this faith, her belief, her trust, her action to be able to reach out to her only hope was what led to her healing. Hebrews 11.6, a Sunday night crowd knows, knows this verse well. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, number one, and, number two, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What I told the man a week ago was, I said, you are doing the right thing. You are in the right place. You're seeking the right man. And if you will continue in that, 
If you will continue seeking the Lord, if you will continue reaching out for Him, He knows who you are. He knows your situation far better than I do. And I believe that He will reward your faith if you'll continue to seek Him. But I love how Jesus puts it. Take heart. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Faith is the, the only cure at this point for both of these stories. Um, for, the, for the girl, the 12-year-old girl, she's, she's dead. She's, I mean, there was a point where these people are in the process of mourning. Jesus, even though he's a man of reputation for healing and power and strength, Jesus comes in and says to them, do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And what is their reaction? They laughed at him. They mocked him. Can, I mean, can you, can you juxtapose these very strange ideas? Here's these people who are overwhelmed with mourning and grief. And Jesus says, do not mourn. She is not dead. And in the midst of weeping and wailing and maybe even you know, just the, 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 the whole picture you get there is all of a sudden <laughs> this, this burst of laughter, this, this reflexive gut uh, instinct that, that, that just burst forth of disbelief. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, Child, arise. In a house of heavy hearts, Jesus brings hope that defies logical explanation, that defies the human experience. And it was Jesus who brought forth these things. Then Jesus caps it off, and now we are uh, still in Luke chapter, uh, moving now to Luke chapter 9, and uh, here's what happens. He called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons that cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever whatever house you stay, stay there, uh, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing Everywhere. Now, Jesus showed, obviously, these previous stories that he was no ordinary rabbi. There are lots of rabbis in Jesus' time, many who claimed to be the Messiah, but only one who did the awesome works that Jesus did. And can you just imagine the apostles? Now, of course, we don't know from, from, from Luke chapter 8 into chapter 9 if this is sequential in the timeline. Perhaps not, but perhaps so. Perhaps they're like, wow, it was amazing. Can you believe it caught the storm? Wow, it was amazing. Did you see what he did to those pigs? Man, there was bacon flying everywhere. Man, that's amazing. Did you see what he did to the dead girl? Did you see what he did? How he raised her? He told her? Did you see how the power came out? I mean, they would, I mean if, if it didn't happen sequentially, no doubt the attitude among the disciples would be, wow, did you see that? I can't even believe it. I mean, just this enthusiasm which overwhelmed them. And, and no doubt they were just like, we hitched our star to the right, or our wagon to the right star. You don't hitch your stars to wagons. Um, but then he commissions them. Then he says, now I want you to do that. I want you to proclaim and to heal 
and, and, and I, don't, I don't want you to take anything with you. I don't want you to trust in anything. I don't want you to have any provisions for the journey beyond just what you have with you. I don't want you to, to worry about where you're going to stay. I mean, the, he's asking them not only to, to, to proclaim and pronounce and to heal, but also to trust him. I need you to trust me now. I've told you before, and you, you probably remember because um, my lessons have that kind of an impact that the definition for an apostle is very simple. You just pull out a single penny, and you remember an apostle is one cent. The the, the 12 were were those who were not just there to get a front row seat and watch all the awesome things and swap stories about all the ways in which Jesus was awesome. But Jesus had a purpose in mind for calling those 12 and asking them to follow him, that he was preparing them to go and do what he had been doing. Take nothing for the journey. They were sent out with nothing but their faith and their trust in him each day. And and here's the, the gist of it. I mean, going out, if we understand that they went out in pairs, that as he sent them out, there had to be conversations, how are we supposed to do this? What are we supposed to do next? I mean, that was Jesus, but we're just common, ordinary, uneducated fishermen and tax collectors. How are we supposed to do that? They had to trust him. They had to have the same kind of faith that each of the persons that we've talked about tonight. Every person had to trust Jesus. And it's fun to watch people trust Jesus. It's, it's great to encourage them, but it's an entirely different scenario when Jesus calls you to trust him. And that's what he does. He sends them out. You've got to trust me, because there's coming a time when I won't be here anymore. and You're going to have to learn how to do this. I think that's beautiful, as Jesus doesn't just... Obviously, everybody glorified in these moments, and they praised Jesus, and they, they rejoiced at what he could do. But Jesus had something bigger in mind. A kingdom was at stake. The truth is, everything is not awesome. I mean, the song is catchy if you've, if you've heard it, and it sticks in your brain like an earworm that will not leave. But, but everything is not awesome. The longer you live on this earth, the more you understand that. But Jesus absolutely is. And he changes everything. And so my challenge for you tonight is simply this. May we remember to stay amazed. May we remember to keep that holy sense of awe. May we remember to stay amazed amazed at his authority, at his power, at his might, at his majesty. And God forbid that we ever enter a place like this and praise him and study the word that his spirit inspired and pray to him and meet at his table without a sense of absolute, total amazement. That we keep that sense of holy awe.
and may it overflow in our lives. So the lesson is this, stay in amazement. Stay in a holy sense of awe. As the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 66, verse 5, come and see what the Lord has done. His awesome deeds for mankind. May he never stop amazing you. Now, we know he did awesome things then. And if we had time tonight and could set up a microphone and just have people come down and share what God has done and the amazing things you've seen him do, well, we'd be here for way longer than you want to be here. But may that not be, may we not just keep that testimony here. May we remember that there's a world that needs to hear that. And and I realize all the stories we talked about, when you really sink down and just kind of let the text change you, you you just have four jaw-dropping story after jaw-dropping story after jaw-dropping story. And as amazing as those are, they pale in comparison with what God is doing in you and with how he can change your life in this world and in the world to come. But it's the same source. It's the same man. It's the same Savior. May we keep our holy sense of awe. If you don't know Jesus, tonight I'd be more than happy to tell you about him and to help you begin that first step in following him, to believe Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? I know it's not awesome because we offer it every time, but but the, the, the free gift of eternal life, the hope of eternity with God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in you is offered freely. Not just right now, but at all times, to anyone who would reach out to accept it, to obey the gospel and to respond. That's awesome. And if you're ready to begin your journey with Jesus, there's no better time to do that than now, no other place to do that than here. You can begin that journey tonight. But let me just say a word to you who are in Christ, because this is highly possible. I want to speak to you if you've lost your holy sense of awe. If Jesus ceases to amaze you as he once did. Maybe it's time for a heart check. Maybe maybe you are wrestling or maybe you are dead in sin. Maybe Satan has so blinded you to forget how awesome the works of God truly are. I want to bring you some hope that just as Jesus raised a girl who was absolutely, totally dead, you can be raised from death and sin. You can have a new life beginning tonight. You can put off the old and put on the new. And may we keep that holy sense of awe. If you've lost that, and you need us to pray with you, 
We need to encourage you. We want to help you do that too. Whatever your need might be tonight, may you not forget that God is awesome. May we sing this next song as though we really, truly believe that. If there is a need tonight, please come. Meet me down front as together we stand.